Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. The common wisdom in my parents' generation was you go to college, you go to more college, the more college and education that you have, the better qualified you're going to be for whatever comes later, and then you get hired by a company, and then you get a stable paycheck. That is no longer the case. When people people vote with their their wallet, wallet, it's one thing, thing, but when people put their entire well-being financially in your hands for a long period of time with no guarantee of return, that's something else entirely. Getting, quote-unquote, fired from my old company was actually the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to re-examine all of my priorities. It forced me to re-examine all of the things in my life that were creating good things in my life and the things that were not. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. You are listening to a very special 12 Days of Christmas Work Hard, Play Hard episodes. These are episodes that I think had the most impact. So I wanted to share it with you as we are approaching the end of the year and getting focused on our goals and what we want to do in 2020. So I hope you enjoy this countdown. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. You know what, man? I am super excited to dig into this interview because so much has freaking changed in your life since we last talked, and I'm so pumped to get into it. Yeah, there's been quite a few changes in the past, man, handful of years, like huge changes. I know, it's crazy. We did our first interview, I think it was 10 years ago, man. Do you know that? You interviewed me for Jet Set Life. Can you believe that's, that? That's crazy. That makes sense. It, it was probably, you're right, it was probably like nine, 10 years ago. It's 
crazy. All right. So I'm excited to dig into a couple of things. I want to talk first about your backgrounds, go into a little bit about the kind of work that you're currently do, doing. And then I want to talk about how you're incorporating some play into your newly married life. And then we'll wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. So I think a good jumping off point for us would be to wind the clock back a bit to when you were around 13, 14 years old. And you were a sort of a super shy kid, but you were crafty in that you learned how to wiretap phones, including your neighbors. Yeah. Can you walk us through what that time in your life was like and sort of how did that inform where you currently are? So when I was a kid, I was an only child and I was absolutely bored out of my gourd, so to say. And I've figured out how to open up those little green boxes on the side of the road that are full of line pairs. And that's every landline phone in the neighborhood. And this is 1994 or so. So everybody had a landline. Nobody had a cell phone. Some houses had two. Most people at least had one. And so I was able to listen in on phone calls because really all you need is a phone with alligator clips on the back end that will amplify the signal coming through those line pairs. They are completely not secure at all. And that was what I started doing. And there was one right near my house and I would go back there and listen for hours and like put my bike next to the box and just listen and listen and listen. And then as cell phones started to become more, I wouldn't say ubiquitous, but certainly some people had them, especially in my area near busy streets, I got a cell phone, a used one, and I programmed it to listen to cellular channels. And I was able to essentially listen to those phone calls too. And I was mostly interested at that time in the system, like how's the phone work? How's the technology work? How do radio frequencies, signals, and all that stuff work? But I then got interested in the people talking on the phones because I started, I, I heard a neighbor of mine and he was getting a divorce. And I remember seeing him and he was like not super nice. And he was kind of like what we might call in modern parlance, kind of a douche. You know, he had like a Corvette that he would drive around way too fast in the neighborhood, blasting his music with the top down. It's like, who are you impressing? But he also lived with his mom, which I thought was kind of, you know, (laughs) classic insecure guy move uh, to have that kind of car while living with your mom and be really showy about it. And so he was getting a divorce and he would talk to his mom on the phone sometimes when she, or maybe it was his aunt because I guess he did live with his mom. So I hadn't really thought about that. He talked to somebody older on the phone and he would be all like, woe is me. And then he would talk to his sister and he would be kind of like, woe is me. What's my ex-wife's problem or soon to be ex-wife's problem. Then he'd talk to his buddies and he'd be like, whatever, I don't even care. If she wants this, she could come and get it. You know, like tough guy. And I just remember thinking if this guy was the same way with his sister and mom as he was with his soon-to-be ex-wife, he would not be in this situation. And as a 14-year-old kid, that was kind of a funny realization because I'm just thinking, how does this guy not know that? And I started... That that was probably for me one of the first times that adults became three-dimensional people with feelings and problems because I was... You know, as a kid, and you probably don't remember this because I barely do... As a kid, your parents are the only people that you kind of know well that are adults. And otherwise, adults like drive you places sometimes, yell at you, feed you stuff, give you homework. That's pretty much it. Soccer coach yells at you, gives you, a, you know, an apple or something, right? Like that's what adults are. They're like this sort of alien entity 
and you don't know, you're not familiar with the ins and outs of their lives. You might hear your parents talking about other adults, but you don't even know what's going on. Like, oh, the Hendersons are are behind on their house payments. Shelly was telling me. You don't know what that means and you don't care. You're like playing Nintendo and watching Perfect Strangers reruns. So mm-hmm. that was the first time where I had somebody talking about things that were very adult topics and not censoring it or talking down to me as a kid. So I had this early initiation into that. And we all know other kids that had early initiations into things that were way too adult and they turn out poorly, right? Like people whose parents are drug addicts and there's violence in the house and drugs and drinking and stuff. That That's bad, right? But this was kind of like, here's just enough of a window to get you curious and teach you things while still being sheltered from all of this drama. Around that age, you know, you were sort of like we talked about, you were sort of, you were sort of shy. You're listening in on the phone calls and you're sort of coming into your own there. What did you, I'm trying to get a sense for, you know, Jordan back in that time. What did you think you were going to be say in high school? You know, I had no idea because I was a good student in elementary school, terrible student in middle school, pretty bad up until junior year of high school where literally I was, I was in home economics and I was one of three guys that got stuffed into that class because like IT or whatever in tech uh, classes were full. And so I remember the home economics teacher hated the guys because we didn't want to be there. She knew we didn't want to be there. And then I just decided at one point that I was going to just do all the work and do well because she was kind of like, I'm not passing anybody just because they're in this class. And I'm like, I'm not going to get a, a C in home economics. That's just embarrassing. So I did all the work and I remember the teacher started to actually like me because I was the only guy that did the work. And I remember having being like, I've got to work harder than the girls because I'm a dude and it's kind of a girl's class, especially in the 90s. And so I worked and worked and worked. And I remember one day she sat me down and she goes, you know, I know that you don't have great grades for the past couple of years, but you're really doing well in my class. And I've talked with other teachers and you're doing well in their class. And she's like, I I know I'm not supposed to know all this stuff, but I'm a teacher and I don't care. And she goes, you're capable of doing the work. You need to work your butt off for the next two years if you're going to get into a good college. You, You have no... Like, you need to do that. Does that make sense? And I was like, yeah, I know. And she's like, no, no, yeah, I know. Do you understand? And I was like, yeah, I got to start off with a bang. She's like, you have to start off with a bang. You're already two years behind. You can do it. It's going to be fine. You just have to work in those other classes like you're working in my class. And so I did. I worked really hard and I got really good grades. I went from like, eh, I don't care about anything to like straight A's pretty much. And then when I applied to college, I continually worked and worked and worked, but I had no clue what I wanted to be. All I knew was that school was not like a great fit for me. But there weren't entrepreneurs. There weren't people who did their own thing in Michigan in the 90s. There just, there wasn't. You know, there were people who failed and did their own thing because they didn't have other options, you know, but that wasn't what my parents had told me. And it wasn't because they were malicious or wanted me to do anything specifically to follow in their footsteps or anything. But people weren't saying, well, you know, college isn't for everybody. Some people go to trade schools and do other things and some people become artists. Like people weren't doing that. People didn't say that that was a path to success. The common wisdom in my parents' generation and a little bit later and that persisted throughout raising kids in the 80s, 90s, and probably early aughts was you go to college, you go to more college, the more college and education that you have, 
the better qualified you're going to be for whatever comes later. And then you get hired by a company and then you get a stable paycheck. That is no longer the case, but I don't blame anybody for telling me that in the 90s because that was absolutely true back then. This is Remember, this is Motor City before the economic collapse where all the manufacturing moves out. These are people, this is a generation of parents that grew up, worked for General Motors or Ford, retired in 30 years and were happy and that was it. So that was a very good, obvious path. And for me, I was like, that sounds miserable, but maybe I'm just immature and don't get it. But you still sort of did it anyway. I mean, you wound up, uh, you decided to go to law school, you took a job on Wall Street, and then and then you sort of got out of that and you found yourself in the world of the art of charm. So maybe we can just take a quick second here and explain for people who aren't familiar, what is the art of charm and why did you decide to do it after you followed this path of school that we're talking about? Right. So the Art of Charm is my old company that I founded, um, currently involved in like a lawsuit with the guys who are still there because they basically fired everyone on the team and took all of the intellectual property and didn't abide by the deal that we had negotiated. So I'll preface it with that. If people are like, oh, this looks interesting, I'll preface it with not good, uh, in my opinion, to be doing business with with people who who operate like that. But the company started, I started it in law school with currently uh, the guy who is one of the guys who's running it. And it was like, I had come up with the idea that networking was a really good idea. But nobody cared about that back then. And so I started going and working on those skill sets myself. However, that was not what 20-something-year-old kids were interested in. So we started teaching essentially dating science and like how to meet girls and things like that. And that was great when we were in our 20s. Now, of course, I'm 38 and that stuff is really played out. But it started getting me interested in concepts like body language, persuasion, nonverbal communication, all of the stuff that I had kind of been interested in back in like the wiretapping days, if you will, in the social engineering days, only it was applied to this the field of the opposite sex, which was far more exciting. So the Art of Charm was essentially in many ways sort of my precursor company that I ran for 11 plus years that got me initiated into the world of training and knowing a lot about persuasion, influence, nonverbal communication, things like that, except it was dating related. And so now what I do at Advanced Human Dynamics and on the Jordan Harbinger show is I do what I think is the adult version. And I don't mean that in the porny way. I mean the grown-up version, I should say, of the things that I started with back at my old company. So it's an evolved version Um, that I think is in in many ways much more advanced, hence the name. Okay, so I don't want to get like knee deep because I know that there's there's litigation and you're an attorney and I know that I'm going to ask all the wrong questions. So I don't want to go, I don't want to go too deep down that road, but I do want to talk a little bit about just the emotion behind it uh, because I think that there's some lessons here that people can glean from this. So when this ended for you, you could have been all bitter and nasty and resentful, but it doesn't seem to me that you were. Maybe your wife and friends would have a different answer, but it doesn't seem to me looking in from the outside that you were super bitter. No. If you're not, what were some of the strategies that you've used to get your thinking right around this? Great question. So at first, I felt really like sad about it because I did build up a show uh, to millions of downloads a month. And that's where the Jordan Harbinger show is now at 4 million downloads a month, thankfully, after seven months of starting something new. 
which was great. And I'll get to that in a second because that was one of the major factors in my quote unquote recovery. Um, but I did go through some several several phases where it was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to start again? This is so sad to this is overwhelming to this is so stressful, things like that. But I never really went through like the anger phase. Like, am I upset about how things turned out because the people dealing with it are dishonorable, generally speaking? Yeah. But I'm not like, I'm going to do all this bad stuff to them. I, I really don't care in that respect because... And, and people don't necessarily believe me when I say that, but let me explain what I mean. The reason that that's the case is because I've been in business for 12 plus years or 11 plus years, I guess now. And so I've had people steal things from me. I've had people vandalize IP. I've had people take opportunities away from me in a, in a way that is legitimately unfair. I've, I've been in situations where everybody says, you should sue this person, you're going to win. And I'm just like, hang on, you know, like, let's relax. And when I look at people that have dealt with us dishonorably in the past, much as the guys that I worked with at the old company are doing now, one of them, and I'm, I'm not even kidding here, Rob, one of them lives in his car. One of them ends up moving back with his mom for years. Another guy is online, always trying to sell the latest and greatest sort of scammy baloney thing. And these are guys that I worked with like eight plus years ago. And I remember in the moment, when those guys did something horrible or stole from us or dealt with us dishonorably, I remember me and my current business partners or you know girlfriend or whatever being like, this is the worst thing. This is the worst person. I'm going to spend time and energy thinking about how I can get back at them and all this. And nothing mattered because it sure seemed really awful and miserable. And they, they won this one, but they won't win the war. Wow, you know, that stuff. But then I just went on with my life and kept building Advanced Human Dynamics, The Jordan Harbinger Show, my personal brand, whatever project I was working on. And then you you kind of wake up one day and you know, you're having a glass of whiskey with an old friend and you go, what? Oh, yeah, what did happen to that guy? And then you get on Google and you go, oh my gosh, why did I worry about this person you know, taking this opportunity from me and then I was all like catastrophizing in my head. They're going to then get other opportunities and then I'm going to lose my business and I'm going to have to do that. No, they're going to live in their car. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, and, and even if somebody does something to you and they're successful later, it really just doesn't matter because it's not these one-off deals that make or break people. It's not this like, that was my opportunity and it should have been me. If you're working hard, you're constantly creating opportunity for yourself. You're constantly creating good content. You're constantly engaging your show's fans if that's what you're doing. You're constantly working on your email, your marketing, your social media, the product quality that you have. People, you can outwork other people just like I outworked people in freaking home economics, right? It's not the one project where someone stole your homework and then they got an A, but it was you who did the work, right? It's you getting an A on the weekly project for the entire semester that gets you a good grade. So to take that analogy further, it really isn't something that I, I... I knew in the moment that it was awful and I had to start from zero with the Jordan Harbinger show. But now I look back and I have every single day a new note from new fans. Hey, I love this. It's better than the old show. Hey, I love what you're doing. Hey, thanks for continuing what you're doing. You know, my social media, my downloads, my sponsorships, everything is up from even the peak of where I was with the old company. And I started from zero in February of this year. So 
it really didn't make I, like I knew it was going to take me a few years to recover. I didn't think it would happen within a year. Well, what's so interesting about this process is, you know, as I aged and was listening to your show, I started to not be at the old show. I started to not be able to identify some of the things, you know, when you were talking about things that, that were in the toolbox, let's say. And I found myself not listening to the show more and more. But then you had some really great people on and you're such a good interviewer that I was like fighting through that part of the show to listen to. It's kind of like, I'm not a big sports guy, but I like to listen to uh, Jay. Is this Jay Mar? Is that his name? Jay Mar? Yeah, a good friend of mine. I love that guy. He's so, such a funny dude. He's funny. He's interesting. But when he gets into sports, it's like, ugh, you know, like I'm not a sports guy. Right. So I had that same thing. So for me now, listening to your show is so freaking good. I mean, you are you are right up there with the best of them. You know, whether it's Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan or any of the the ones that a, a podcast listener would know. I mean, you are at the top of that the top of that chain for sure. Thank you. You're welcome. What lesson did you learn the most through that process? Through which process? The process of ending the art of charm, starting your new podcast, and being where you currently are now. Look, when you look back on this, there's always a lesson for me, anyway. I mean, I don't want to get like you know too esoteric or go too too deep into outer space, but you know, was there some cosmic lesson for you that looking back on this, you're like, okay, this is the writing on the wall. I didn't see it, and I should have. Yeah, there were a few. Um, and some of these are going to sound self-serving slash arrogant, but you asked and I'll tell you because mm -hmm. it, it is sort of something that I've had to come to. I had to face it. And I know that doesn't sound like usually when people face good things, they're happy. But for me, it was like a process. When I, when the old company, when I, you know, just essentially split off from the old company, they fired everybody that worked with me closely. So it was like 30 plus people and they didn't pay them. And those people, I thought, oh my gosh, they're going to blame me. This is such a disaster. I can't believe it. You know, there's all these horrible things that are, that are going to happen as a result. And all of these show fans immediately found the Jordan Harbinger show. And all of my friends and all of my family and all the people I worked with were like, look, you are the show. You're the face of the business. This is something that you can recover from. I'm not, I, I think it's their loss. But when you hear that, you're thinking, it's like when you're young and you're like, why are other people picking on me? And your mom's like, because they're jealous of you, honey. And you're like, oh, okay, but that's not really the case. It's because you're weird, right? So, <laughs> so like, or because you can't play baseball or something. So like, I didn't necessarily believe that. But after a while, I started to realize, well, wait a minute. I did put 11 years of work into being a good interviewer, being a good broadcaster. I did manage my team really well. I did build relationships with my fans. I did build relationships with, with my team. And so what I found when I split and started the Jordan Harbinger show in Advanced Human Dynamics was that the majority, in fact, everyone actually, came with me to the new company. And that was a huge loss for the old company and a huge win for us, even though I couldn't even pay them. So a lot of people worked for free for a while. And the reason they did that was because they were mistreated in the old company, but also because they believed in what we were going to create. And for people to work for you for free or for half pay, that's a vote of confidence that is... It's different than somebody paying lip service to like, you can do it. You, I believe in you, buddy. 
that's, I'm going to let you not pay me for six months because I believe that in six months or a year, you're going to be better than you were before. And I know that you're an honorable enough person that you'll make me whole again. When people vote with their wallet, it's one thing. When people vote with lip service, it's another. But when people put the, their entire well-being financially in your hands for a long period of time with no guaranteed return, that is, that's something else entirely. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And you know, if you think about it, what is the commonality here? The commonality is you. I mean, the downloads went right up to where they were previously because of you. The employees came with you and they weren't tied to money because of you. So that's the lesson that I hear in this, that you know, you are... You, I mean, whatever the legality is, I don't give a shit. The reality is that you are the man. You are the person and everybody was connected to who you are, which is why everybody unsubscribed to that and resubscribed to where you are now. So uh, that's that's how I see it from my perspective. Well, I appreciate that. And, and the data does so far, the data that I can see show that that's the case. But in the moment, you don't necessarily believe that, right? Like you, I thought in that moment when everything fell apart, oh my gosh, it took me 11 years to build the Art of Charm. I basically had to do it myself because I wasn't... With my team, not alone. But you know, with my team, I, was, I didn't have investors. I didn't have competent partners. You know, and, and in, the, in the building of a podcast, because none of us were. We didn't know what we were doing. Right? I had to learn that all. I'm, I'm including myself in that uh, bunch as well. And so that was something that I thought was extremely extremely difficult, scary. But what people told me who were smarter than me and had more experience, you know, more experienced entrepreneurs, they said, look, it took you 11 years because you didn't know what you were doing. It's going to take you two or three years maximum because now you do. And I was like, but, but, but I don't know. You know, people find you slowly and they're like, just do all, do the 20% of everything that actually worked from the old company and bring it to the new one. And most importantly, it it was utilizing my network. And that's why going back to what I teach most of the time now with advanced human dynamics and stuff like that is my network was and is by far the most important lever. And that was the thing that everybody underestimated when the company split was I think that my old business partners thought, we're just going to take the show, we're going to take the email list, and we're going to take the website and screw Jordan. And he's never going to be able to do anything because we have all the assets. But that wasn't really the case. (laughs) They have those assets. But the important thing was actually the relationships that I had with every single person that I interviewed, every single person that I've been talking to, all of the fans... Those are the real assets. You can rebuild an email list. You can rebuild a podcast back catalog. You can rebuild uh, web traffic in the way that you need to. What you can't do is start a brand over from zero and then go, Hey, you know how you liked that guy I worked with? Well, you're supposed to like me now. That doesn't work. No, it doesn't. All right, so let's uh, let's take a right turn. What you are known for, for sure, is podcasting. And when I put a tweet out asking what questions to ask you, 90% of the questions were with regard to podcasting because, you know, as you and I know, everybody and their brother now wants to have a podcast. I have no idea really what it takes to have a good podcast. So I thought I would serve a few of those questions if you're down for it. Sure. All right. So 
You are one of the guys who get the A-list guests. And like I said earlier, I put you up there with, you know, the big boys, the Joe Rogans, Tim Ferriss, et cetera. What makes a good podcaster? Well, different people have different questions for that. So when I look at people's strengths, you know, Tim's is, he's really good at breaking things down, but he's not necessarily like, going to be more entertaining or more energetic or more prepared, for example, with a guest. But his strength on his show is he'll get a really interesting investor and he'll be like, this is what this guy is thinking about, right? What Joe Rogan does, he's got such... He's funny. He's got such a goofball mindset. He'll get a really big name celebrity in there and he'll rap with them and get them for three hours and get them to say all kinds of funny stuff or talk about things or get them to smoke weed or whatever. And that makes his show entertaining and funny, but I don't necessarily have those. What I do is I will grab a guest and I will read their book and I will watch all of their talks and I will prepare more than anyone else. I will know the subject matter so well that I'm able to ask them questions about that subject matter that's not just, hey, I looked at the cover of your book and now I have random questions that I could have gotten the answer to by simply reading the synopsis online. I'm asking advanced questions and I also have that guest teach the audience what they actually know and how to apply it. So our our show, The Jordan Harbinger Show, every episode has worksheets and the show notes contain the worksheets. And in the worksheets, it's like, okay, we just learned about Alzheimer's disease and how to do certain things to stave that off or recover from it. Okay, we learned negotiation tactics on how to negotiate a raise or save money on a car. Here are these 10 things that you can do to apply those skills so that you remember them and things like that. And that is actually quite important because that's what makes a good podcaster for a smart audience is, am I coming away having learned something? So when you listen to Tim Ferriss, you learn how someone else thinks. When you listen to The Jordan Harbinger Show, you learn how someone else thinks and you can apply what they know to for yourself And when you listen to Joe Rogan, you learn a lot about that person. But do you have three... It's a three-hour long show. There may be 18 minutes in there where like that was really informative. But again, I don't know if you can particularly apply what that person knows. And I don't mean that in any sort of derogatory way. Like I enjoy both of those shows. It's just that they all... We all have different strengths. If you're looking for a funny show, I would choose Rogan over Tim Ferriss. And if you're looking for a big celebrity, I would choose... Tim Ferriss over the Jordan Harbinger show for the most part, right? Um, That's why I think we probably have so much overlap is because there's so many people that listen to Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan and the Jordan Harbinger show because we offer those different things, but they're all for, at least most of the episodes are for people that like to learn, that are intelligent, that are educating or self-educating, that want to be able to, to learn something that they can hopefully later on actually use. That's such a that's such a great analogy. Like I listen to the Joe Rogan show when I'm doing laundry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like it's taking my mindless task and making me laugh. But you know, Tim Ferris is a little different and yours is a little different. So that's a, actually a really great point. How do you think about podcasting now from when you started? In other words, is there anything that you've changed your mind about through the years? Good question. Yes. There are certainly things that I've changed my mind about through the years. I'm trying to think about, oh, you know what? Here's one. I used to, I wouldn't say brag, but I used to be kind of like, I don't know, cocky is probably the right word. A little more ego? 
Yeah, but but in the res- with respect to, for example, I remember my wife always brings this up. She says, you know, Jordan reads the books and he's doing this and he's watching the TED Talks and he's watching the Google Talks and he's listening to the, their interview on another show and he's listening to NPR and then he goes and he reads the old book that they wrote eight years ago and da 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 da. But before, I mean, five years ago, six years ago, I remember somebody sent me, you know, people started, they send you galleys, they send you review copies of the book. And I would just throw them in the recycle bin or I donated them to the library, depending on whether the library wanted those types of books. And I'm like, why do people think I'm going to read their book before I interview them? That's so ridiculous. Like, I have time for that. I can just read the synopsis and then do the conversation. I don't need to read the whole book. And I, and people were like, yeah, I don't get why anybody would read the whole book before the interview. And then I interviewed Robert Greene for my seven-year anniversary episode, which was five years ago now. And... I remember going, all right, I don't want to screw this up. He's kind of a big deal. I really like what he's doing. I've read most of his book, but it was so long ago. Let me pick it up again, read it, highlight it, etc. So I did that. I read it. I highlighted it. I prepared. I created a great show outline. And at the end of the episode, he goes, this is one of the best interviews I've ever done. Why did this take so long? And I was like, oh, I wanted to do it right. you know." And he goes, man, this is good. You know, I get interviewed by a lot of journalists. This is, this is a really good interview. And then I was like, wait a minute. What if I read all of the books? And what if I did all of the necessary prep to really knock every episode of the show out of the park? And I did that. And then I remember thinking, now I'm like, how on earth are you going to do an interview with somebody if you didn't read their book? How the hell are you not just wasting their time and the time of your audience? Because I'm not here to give a synopsis of the book. They can get that on a PDF. You know, they can, they can listen to an audio synopsis on Audible. I'm here to have a conversation with the guest about the book. And I can't do that if I didn't read the book. And, and there's, you're sure publicists give you those little sheets where it's like four questions that you can ask. That's for lazy AM or FM radio morning show talk show hosts. That's not for a deep dive into a topical subject matter. And those four questions, if you use those, guess what? Your interview sounds exactly like every other interview that that person has done. So the Jordan Harbinger show is like 45 minutes to an hour long. Four questions are for... That's, that's a five, six minute radio piece. So it's just not as interesting. So I learned that uh, going back to outworking everyone in home economics class, the best thing you can do is be so well prepared that the guest is like, oh, this is a real conversation now. I'm not just going to be like, here's my four sound bites I had for radio this morning. I remember interviewing a guy uh, a few days ago he said he did 16 interviews that day. And I said, well, this is going to be different. And he goes, yeah, this one s- says it's an hour. Is that correct? And I said, yeah, I read the whole book. <laughs> he goes, oh, okay. And so we did it. And at the end, he goes, you know, I thought I was going to be dead by this interview, but because I did 16. But this, is, this was by far the most informative, interesting, and exciting and science-filled interview that we did. And he goes, I'm glad that, that I ended with this one. Because of course he spent the other the whole morning from five a.m. to eleven a.m. going, oh yeah, here's the same four things that I just answered eighty seven different times, and that makes for a good show, and it makes it for it makes for a unique show, and that's a show that people actually want to listen to because otherwise you're just doing what everyone else is doing. You've become a commodity. What's the point? Yeah. Plus, you get them off their game, and they're they're telling the same freaking story that you don't even know if it actually happened the way they're telling it because they've told it so many times. 
that you're just not getting uh, reality there. But was there a particular inflection point for you that accounted for the hockey stick growth in downloads that you had with podcasting? In other words, were you on somebody's show or did you did somebody write an article about you where you're like, right after this happened, I exploded? No, that's the disappointing slash, I guess, interesting part about podcasting. There was never like a big break. And I spent 11 years trying to figure out what that big break might be. And it was like, oh, I'm going on Tony Robbins and it's, yep, you get a big boost. Oh, I'm going on this other giant, I'm on Adam Carolla and you get a boost. But then you go on Adam Carolla again and it's like, okay, you know, the boost is sort of faded. A couple of people stuck with you. The rest of them didn't, you know, and you build these little bricks one at a time. And so when I look at my growth graph, there isn't like explosive growth here, explosive growth there, explosive. And then, you know, a, a, a curve. It's, it goes from, for over the course of years, it just goes up very, very slowly. And it just continually trended upward, which is good because a lot of shows, they trend downward and then they trend upward again. We really only had even remote downward trends in like December and then early January. And then it's like, oh, back up again. And, and that's something that we'd seen just for years. And so that's what we see now is just upward growth, but it's not continual. There is no hockey stick. It's really a slow grade incline. So crazy. You know, a buddy of mine's an actor and he was in, uh, he's been, he did a lot, like a lot of bit roles and stuff, but then he gets the Titanic and he's the Italian kid at the beginning of the movie. Um, his name's Danny Nucci and he was with DiCaprio and they were, you know, he was the one that he was playing the cards with and he won to get onto the boat. And he was like, this is it. This is my spot. I'm going to, it's going to go crazy and nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Even freaking Titanic, you know? So it's interesting. Okay. Are there any specific routines or habits that you have in place around podcasting that is keeping you functioning at a super high level the way you are? I spend a lot of time reading. I treat it as part of the job. I don't go, yeah, I've got to shovel in a few pages of this book later so that I can wing the interview tomorrow. You know, I really treat that as part of the show. The show prep is the most important part of what I do. And that was really highlighted. It's kind of funny because getting quote unquote fired from my old company was actually the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to re-examine all of my priorities. It forced me to re-examine all of my habits and all of the the things in my life that were creating good things in my life and the things that were not. So it was like, oh, I got to manage the stress, get back in the gym. Now I work out every day. And then it was like, uh, no, you know, I need, I have so much to do. I've got to get up early. Now I get up early and I get more work done before lunch than most people get done all day. But my wife was really a big advocate of, look, you need to create really good content. You cannot release crap. You can't have one bad episode in the next like six months to a year because all of these new people are going to be finding you. All of these old people are going to be like, does he still have the magic? You know? And so I worked extra hard on, on bringing out good shows and that level of commitment to bringing out good material has stuck with me and stuck with the team. So my producer will stay up late releasing something. My show notes guy will go the extra mile. Stuff doesn't roll in late. I don't do an interview if I don't think it's going to be a good fit. If something records and it isn't up to snuff, we don't 
release it. You know, there's all kinds of stuff like that that maybe on the old show we'd be like, eh, you know, look, we need to throw something in on Tuesday. It wasn't the greatest. It's episode 702. We'll survive. Now it's like, we can't air this. It's not phenomenal. We throw it away. Yeah, the quality the quality is much, much higher. How do you find rapport with guests that, you know, you're really good at rapport. You're extraordinarily articulate. You, you just got that thing. Like you just have the ability to communicate better than almost anybody I know. How do you find rapport with guests that you're not clicking with? And does that ever happen to you? It does. Yeah, it does happen a lot, especially if you're doing an interview that's remote and they're on Skype or Zencaster or whatever, and you don't know them well, and they're a different generation. And you can really get some people that especially, and look, sorry, scientists, but a lot of scientists are like this because I think a lot of people who work in academic environments that are surrounded by a bunch of PhD candidates kissing their butt all the time, and also aren't necessarily maybe the most socially calibrated folks, they write a book and they're kind of like, all right, let's get to this. Let's get this over with because they don't respect podcasts. They have to sell their book. They resent the fact that they actually have to market their work because they're coming from academia. They think it's not worth their time. And so there's a lot of people like that where it's kind of like no matter what, they just don't want to be there. And the way that I've found works really well is I'll say something like, look, I've read the whole book and I also saw this and this and this. And then demonstrating an understanding of what they appreciate has worked really well. So for a scientist, for example, being like, I read the book and you know, I really like this and I really like that. And here's some questions I had about this. And they can tell by the questions that I actually cared enough to, to go into their work. And that generates a little rapport. The problem is it takes 20 minutes right? Of showtime to do it. That's another reason the show's an hour. There are other times where people come in and they just don't care and they don't have any respect for the platform. And I'll name drop this person. I was interviewing Polly Shore and he was just, he just didn't care. He could not have cared less. And I didn't air the show. And I remember um, his manager or, or some publicist, I think, was pretty annoyed about that. And I sent them the audio file and I said, you tell me that this is worth airing. Because in the middle of the interview... It was, or sorry, about 15 minutes in of an hour-long interview. He goes, hey, how much longer is this crap? I got some shit I got to do in the other room. Come on. And I went, well, we can let you go right now, Polly. And he was like, okay, cool, man. Bye. I mean, he just didn't Maybe care. He, he was probably high. I, I think so, yeah. I mean, I was just thinking like, oh, you, if you need to go take another hit, I'll wait, right? <laughs> Holy shit, that's, that's so funny. Are there any particular podcasters that have impacted you? Not podcasts that you like. Is there anybody that you're like, you know what? This guy has got it going on in even a unique and different way. I mean, like we're looking at, you know, like Malcolm Gladwell has his new thing now. There's a new podcast where they're talking about like, inanimate objects, which is a, a, a very creative one. Everything is alive, I think it's called. So there's a lot of there's a lot of new things out there. But is there anything for you that you're like, this is refreshing. This is really good. I mean, some of the stuff I like is just objectively kind of stupid. But um <laughs> so I'll, I'll go like, into like that. Like what? Give me give me the stupid one. So there's one called Dexter Guff is smarter than you. And what it is is a show that is a parody of self-help and those, you know, these inspirational guys where they'll have some like two-bit reality actor as the guest on the show. And the person, they're like, how do you, you know, like 
stay positive when you're in Hollywood and you're facing all this rejection. And the person's like, I just do yoga and I just like <laughs> make sure I wake up every day with a smile on my face and be like, thank God I'm alive. And they're like, wow, it's so inspiring. There are real shows like that, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. this Dexter Guff guy, they really, the writers are these comedy writers from Canada, uh, Chris Kelly, Kelly and Kelly. And they just really nailed it where they'll have the guy and it's, it's you know, explaining jokes is never funny. So I'll leave it at this. But they, they have the host going into like, oh, hey, Shelly, how you doing? Oh, I'm great. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, oh, where are you right now? Dubai? Oh, tell me you got a south-facing room at the Shangri-La. Oh, isn't that the best? You know, and they're just like riffing on, oh, I flew here first class. It's just so nails the self-help niche and podcasting inspiration, thought leader, influencer bullshit. And I just think it's really, really funny because it's kind of like everyone's in on that joke except for the people who are making and creating those shows. <laughs> right. Okay, perfect. You know, you've done you've actually come out from, you know, sort of behind the the podcasting table and done and have done a lot of in-person stuff too. I mean, I remember remember one night I was sitting there with Kim and we were watching Larry King and you know, we see your pretty face on the TV and we're like, whoa, look at him, you know? And then there's Adam Carolla. You know, do you prefer doing the in-person stuff or do you like, you know, being at home behind the mic doing the podcast? I like doing the in-person stuff. I think it's really interesting to see people's nonverbal stuff going back to kind of what we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. That stuff is interesting for me. And you, you kind of don't have that. Right, you don't really have that on Skype, and you also don't have it if you're even if you're in person and you're not. You know, it's, let's see. This is kind of there's something here that's that I'm missing. The reason that it's better in person is not only because you have nonverbal communication and you can kind of see what's going on, but also there's a social contract where I flew out to Kentucky or New York to interview this person. So they can't cut it short. They can't be distracted. They can't look at their phone. Their assistant can come in and I can say, can I get 15 more minutes? I mean, I, I traveled really far and I really am enjoying this. You know, they, they can't... I, I, I squeeze them a little, right? You know? And I think that that's, there's something there where they just respect the process a little bit more. And you also end up with a connection where the guide that guides us socially, the, the, non, the unspoken rules of society are in full force. So if I'm sitting in front of Larry King, it's different than he sitting there on his phone in a basement going, who am I talking to right now? To his assistant, right? It's better if I'm sitting in front of him because we're on equal footing. And I think that that just makes a huge difference. Yeah, and there's an energy between two people that just doesn't exist you know, I, I don't know how to put it in any other words, but when you're just hanging with somebody, there's there's also the nonverbals. But I think there's there's just I don't know, there's just an energy when sitting there with somebody. So, to that point, do you see yourself moving into either you know moving to L.A. or New York and having people fly in to meet with you and setting up you know like a rich roll Lewis House sort of environment? No, I don't think I'll do that. As much as I'd like to do the shows in person, doing them in those cities is not really appealing to me. And I, I do see some of those shows where everybody comes into the studio, but I also see that that's kind of more for them to become an Instagram influencer or a YouTuber than it is to get really good rapport with the guest. Mm. And I, you know, I don't want to mention anybody's name, of course, but there are a lot of low-quality shows that are done in person. 
And so I think I can bring the in-person quality to most of what I do. And just having the numbers that I do, I can kind of drag everybody up to San Francisco anyway. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're at, you're at the top of your game, so you get to call it, but you earned it. I mean, you did, you've done so many years of this. All right, so let's move into the uh, the second half of the show, which is uh, much quicker. It's the play hard round of the show. And most entrepreneurs are super driven and they just don't take the time to play. Now, play hard does not have to be champagne spraying in Saint-Tropez, which I've been accused of a lot, um, although it could be. It could be something as simple as making the time to read the book that you've always wanted to read. But the point is that it's something that's non-work related. So the first question is, if you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? My wife and I want to... We love these escape rooms. And so we're probably going to go to Eastern Europe where these things are popular and just play as many as we can. And so that's that's probably why, because we love those things. Not because there's great geography or great food. It's really just these escape rooms. It's like a co- thing that they've got there in, in force. So crazy. I was in the elevator in my building yesterday and somebody, there's a new one here in Atlanta that everybody's talking about, but I'm so crazy claustrophobic that she was describing it to me. I was like, get the fuck, like there's no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah, it uh, depends on the room. Yeah. (laughs) What's the thing that's rocking your world now that has nothing to do with work? Good question. Nothing to do with work? Yep. I mean, I've been studying Chinese for a long time and I'm starting to get good enough at it where I can understand pretty much everything that's being said to me. So that's kind of cool. And I've been studying a lot of vocab to really ramp it up. Yeah. Yeah. I got kind of a new energy with it. Um, how much time do you take off to recharge and refocus per week or per year? Or, or how do you, um, how do you, how do you hit the reset button? Yeah, that's a, that's something that I, I wouldn't say I necessarily struggle with it. I just don't prioritize it. So I don't actually spend much slash any time off. I do take time off on trips occasionally where I'll wrap in a couple of days extra. Like, and if I, for example, I'm going to Australia in October and I'm going to be speaking at a conference. It's three days long. Then there's like a day-long speaker retreat. And then after that, I think we're staying for another week and change to hang out with friends and enjoy Australia a little bit. So we tack those things on. But I don't spend... I don't do that whole like, I'm taking two months and going to Greece. You know, that sounds nice in theory, but it doesn't really work with what I'm doing. And I think I would get bored really fast. Mm-hmm. Got it. Other than time, what's the biggest block challenge or struggle with adding more play into your life? I'm a workaholic, so I don't really... I don't go, oh, I just don't have time. I'm just kind of like, I don't want to do that. I'd rather... If, if I have a big block of free time, I don't go, you know, I'm going to go down to the beach and lay around. I go, I'm going to read. You know, I'm going to read this book for the show. Okay. If you had all the time and the money to pursue any hobby or recreational activity, what would it be and why? So in other words, you know, what's the one thing that you've always wanted to learn? I know you mentioned uh, Chinese, but you just haven't gotten around to. Is there anything else in that area, like surfing, playing guitar? Is there anything that's been like, I just really would love to do that? Yeah, this is weird and probably has to do with work, but so you can disqualify it if you want. But um, I live so close to Stanford that I thought, what if I just go to journalism school and learn how to do all these interviews and stuff like that in an actual from an actual course, from people who've actually done this as a career instead of just 
figuring it out on my own, which I've been doing for the last decade and change. You know, I would argue you don't need it, but I totally get why you want to do it. Yeah, I'm thinking about auditing some classes versus enrolling and then finding out after one expensive semester that I don't need it, you know? <laughs> for sure, for sure. I think you could actually teach the freaking class, to be honest with you. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about the morning routine, right? That's like the hot, the hot button question. But I'm kind of interested in your evening routine. Do you have any like wind down routine that's interesting? Glass of wine with the wife, music, or, or nothing really to speak of? Uh, it depends, really. Uh, one thing I do for sure is I make sure that I take probiotics and vitamins and things like that because I feel like during the day I'm go, go, go. Half the time my breakfast or lunch is just like a coffee because mm -hmm. I'm just working and I don't feel hungry or something like that. And so I need to make sure that I'm getting nutrition, eating right. But I put on blue blockers because I do like to watch Vice News and or you know, play video games with my wife or something like that, but I don't want to have blue lights screwing me up. So I put on blue blockers. We change the lighting in the house to be like red, kind of. Um, a red and purple, like very dark and dim and not a lot of blue light uh, in, in the mix. And so we use those LED light bulbs, like the Philips Hue, along with blue blockers. And we just kind of sit around with the cat or friends and, and hang out. But no, I don't really do like wine... I don't really do anything like that, but I do make sure that I'm taking care of my body a little bit. And I go to bed pretty early. What time do you go to bed? Like 10. Mm, me too. It's not yeah, super I get up early, early too. but I think for a lot of people, they're like, what? You know? No, it's early-ish. It's early-ish. Yeah. And the older you get, the earlier it gets. Okay, let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you'd like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Jeez. Languages, probably. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Drowning in a cave underwater. It's not rational. <laughs> Does it have to be a rational thing? <laughs> Anything you want. What keeps you up at night? Nothing. I sleep like a rock. What do people never ask you, but you wish they did? Oh, that's great. How do I get more work done? People are always asking me for shortcuts, but they're never asking me how they can actually do more of what matters. What's the one thing you want to get better at? I want to get better at, at interviewing, even if it's until I'm the best that there is. What audiobook or regular book have you re-listened to the most times? Probably Extreme Ownership by, with Jocko Willink, because it really is something where you can't pass on the responsibility. So it's a good sort of concept to have. Plus it's got cool like combat stories in it and stuff so it goes pretty quick yeah shit blowing up always always gets guys going exactly what's what's the one thing that you own and probably should throw out but never will oh man that's also really good should throw out but never will my wife probably has a huge list of things i should throw out but never will probably this vintage re20 microphone that i use i mean i could easily replace this but i don't want to if you could give a TED Talk on nothing that you're known for, nothing that you speak about, and it could be really on anything that you like or anything that you have a passion for or anything else at all, what would it be? These are really good questions. I think I would give a talk, nothing that I'm known for, nothing that I speak about. I would probably give a talk on how to travel to dangerous places because I've, I've done a lot of that and uh, there's no, there aren't any books about it. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Last question. We're going to change it up. What one question do you want to ask me? 
Why do you still podcast after like 10 years? Because like you, I obsess over microphones. I obsess over the questions. I obsess over learning what I did right, learning what I did wrong, wanting to do the best. I, I study guys like you and Larry King and see what makes it work. I'm insatiably curious. And it is a beautiful way for me to step into a world that I'm not going to get you on the phone. You got your life going. But I got you for an hour to sit here and ask you anything I want which weaves into the fabric of my life and it changes who I am as a person because of all this information that I have. Well, I'm happy to do it, man. And I appreciate the opportunity. Sure. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Sure. If you're listening to a podcast, check out the Jordan Harbinger Show and every episode has worksheets. And I always strive to teach people what I know. And uh, I also have a, a course on building relationships, networking, which is what saved my bacon and allowed me to really restart really quick. It's the best thing you can do in business or your personal life is have a strong network. And the course is free. And that's at advancedhumandynamics.com slash level one. Advancedhumandynamics.com slash level one. But yeah, check out the Jordan Harbinger show and let me know what you think. I hope to see some new show fans as a result. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.